Good morning, everyone. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at Fairhaven, and I'm really, really glad that you're here this morning. And as we jump into the Word, I was just thinking as we were worshiping here this morning that it's a unique thing that we gather up here week after week after week. And I know people have been doing it for a long time, but for what purpose? Why are we gathering here every single week? And why do we get together with one another? And why do we worship together? And why do we break open the Bible together? And my hope is this. It's not because it's routine. It's not because we've been doing it for a long time as well. It's because we actually hunger for God and we actually long for God to move in this place. And we long, as we sang about the Holy Spirit filling this place and filling this space, us, that we actually long for that. And so my, my hope here is that we don't just come here today and what we're going to do now as we break open the Bible together isn't that we just we read the Bible again and we hear a message again and we think again about God again, but that God actually meets us. So I want to give us some space here to get ready for that, that we may be expectant. And so we just ask that you'd bow your head with me and let's pray. Lord, we don't want any Sunday to be a normal Sunday unless normal is we have an encounter with you. And because you are a God that is not to be boxed, that you remain predictably a God of love and compassion and grace and mercy, but unpredictable in how you might move among us or in us or toward us, We would ask now, you who know everything about us, you who love us, you who forgive us, you who redeem us and restore us, and you who made us, may you now, through this your servant, speak. And may you move by your Spirit so much so that we would not just gather again, in a church again, in this space again, but we might encounter you and you, us, and might be transformed then by your Holy Spirit power. We pray this in the power of the name of the one that we love, who gave himself for each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 8 today. If you brought your Bible with, I would invite you to start turning there to Genesis chapter 8. And as you turn in there, we're we're in the second week of our uh, study on Noah. So last week was Noah part 1. This week, Noah part 2. And I want to point out the obvious in this. When we talk about Noah and the ark, it is a pretty familiar story to most of us that are gathered here this morning. Maybe not all of us. But most of us have at least heard about it or heard there was a movie that was made about Noah not so long ago. We've heard about an ark. We've heard about a flood that hit the earth. And I also want to point out the obvious that if we are willing to look at this story as we did last week and will today, and if we're willing to stay curious on the story, questions are going to arise in this story more than we can possibly answer in two weeks as we study Noah. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay not having all the answers 
to every single question that we encounter because I do not believe that the only time we learn, the only time we encounter God, the only time that we have a chance to get in the Bible is actually here on Sunday morning, that we can do that on a regular, whether it's a podcast or listening or reading the scripture or going through the devotion that Jeremy brought up here, chance for us to continue to grow and to learn as we dive into these questions. And questions, I think, are really, really healthy. In fact, I think one of the greatest ways that we can learn is not by moving to the most simplistic answer we can find to whatever question is out there, but wrestling with the most complex questions that we encounter. In fact, if we were to go back to first century learning when Jesus was on this planet walking around as a rabbi and back up from there when Jesus was a child and was learning or any children that were learning in Judaism at that time, what would have happened was, was this. Very early on, they would be taught the art of questions. And the reason was because the teacher or the rabbi actually believed, and I think there's something to this, actually believed that until you could ask a good question about whatever was being taught, whether it's in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible, the Torah, whether it's those or some of the wisdom literature, until you could ask a good question about it, you likely have not mastered the content there, understood it. And it would look like maybe this. Teacher, you just said this, but if that's true, then what, what then does this mean? Ah, you're on to it. You're understanding it. In fact, if you were to chase the story of Jesus and look in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, if you look in those stories, all these questions that came at Jesus... Hundreds of questions coming Jesus' way. And you can count on one hand how many times Jesus actually gave a response, a statement back to answer that question. Because again and again and again and again in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, what Jesus actually did was respond to a question with a greater question. Good question. And then he would go with a deeper question to continue to wrestle with and think on a chance to think about God, a chance to think about the world in which you live, a chance to dive deeper into us, into the person that Jesus was speaking to. I think there's something to that. And today we certainly are going to jump into a story that is familiar because it's a story about an ark and a story about animals. It's a story about a rainbow that was put in the sky. But make no mistake about it, when we talk about this story, there is stuff there that is worth wrestling with and chewing on and maybe not fully getting your hands around or your mind around because it's about God and it's about the world and it's about us. And this story... It has all the makings of an amazing, amazing story. In fact, I, I texted Jeremy yesterday and was just like, man, I can't wait to teach on this one because it is so profound, so deep, so good. The story is it's got the good, the bad and the ugly, which is a Clint Eastwood movie. And if you don't know who Clint Eastwood is, like, I don't even know what to say to you because Clint Eastwood 
Miss Tanya, greatest actor of all times. And you can disagree with me, and you're wrong, and I'm okay with that. I'm all right with that because he is the man. And the good in this story, actually it comes out of Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. And this is it. Here's the good. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Great way to start the story. You start on the good. Noah's this righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time, like well-respected, and he walked faithfully with God. How many people was that said about in the first five books of the Bible? One. Just one. Wasn't said about Abraham. Wasn't said about Isaac. Wasn't said about Jacob. This was not said about Moses or Joshua. It was not said about Joseph. Just one man qualified to have that said of him, a righteous man, blameless among his people, and he walked faithfully with God. Great way to start the story. Then you have the bad. The bad comes from chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. Something happened to the earth. It says if the earth itself was broken, or the earth itself got broke. Like something corrupted the earth, and the earth became sour. The earth became like, I don't know, like curdled milk that got left on the counter. And you wonder, did I leave it there too long, put it back in the refrigerator, and wonder when it's past the expiration date, and you're pouring it out, and it's nothing but chunks. The earth became corrupted, the batch. And then the ugly. Genesis 7:24. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Nothing but water, 150 days of water. That's a long time. The earth went from sour, corrupted, broken, to destroyed. 150 days of water. I mean, we have 40 days and 40 nights that we can think about the rain fell on the earth and the waters came up from underneath. We have 40 days and 40 nights. We have 150 days that these waters are actually on the earth. We have the seventh day of the seventh month in this story where we actually find that the ark, it embeds itself or it, it goes and hits the Mount Ararat and there it gets stuck on the mountain, and then it takes another another couple months because it's the tenth day of the tenth month that the waters actually recede enough that you start to see the tops of the mountains. How long is this? Many scholars will look at it and say, we're talking about a period of one year, somewhere around a year, that Noah is on this ark with these animals, and I got so many questions, so many questions. When I start to think about one year inside an ark and you're sitting stuck on a mountain from the seventh month into the tenth month before even the top of the mountains appear, like what's happening inside of the ark? What's going on? You let your mind go. Get curious. Was it like a big hibernation that's happening? Or where's all the food coming from? What's happening inside of Noah's mind? What's happening inside of the relationships that are inside of there? How do you keep the lion from chewing on the, the leg of a lamb? Like, stop it already. We're going to need that lamb later. Like, come on. What are you doing here? What do you do with all of this story? 
And what's fascinating to me is that what's happening inside the boat is not near as fascinating as what's happening outside the boat. And that is what I want to talk about this morning. Let's read the story together. The the book of Genesis, chapter 8, verses 1 through 20. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heaven had been closed. And the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the seventh day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month. And on the first day of the tenth month, the top of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could not find, could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again set out the dove from the ark. And when the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. I mean, just... Think about what that would mean to you inside this boat for this long. And yes, the water is receding from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 600 uh, and first year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds and the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed 
burnt offerings on it. That last sentence made me almost laugh when I read it because I'm like, are you kidding me? Like you have kept these animals for this long and then you take a few out and you go to the altar and you just sacrifice. I mean, what's he looking over at the lion? I told you don't chew on the lamb's leg. I was going to need it later and now I'm using it over here. And like so many questions again about what's going on here, right? But in this story, as we look at this story, it was a long haul on that thing. On that thing called the ark. Last week in part one, what, what we did is we started with the story of the building of the ark and the flood that came and then we chased back to the beginning of creation saying, water everywhere covering the whole surface of the earth. Have we ever seen this before? Is there anything else in the Bible in this short reading of it from chapter 1 up to like chapter 6? Have we seen anything in the Bible already that resembles water over the entire surface of the deep? And the answer is, yep, we have. The very beginning of creation. We find that God, in the beginning, He created the heavens and the earth and everything that is. And it began on day 1 where God is hovering over the surface of the deep. Where have we seen this before? Just water everywhere. Where have we seen this before? And what did God do? He separated the waters from above from the waters below. And there in the middle of this, Jeremy described it like a dome, if you will, that thought that we live in this place where the waters above and the waters below, they are held back and then life exists in this place. Where have we seen this before? And we're just getting started. Noah Part two. We're just getting started with this story. And, and I'm always curious when I encounter a text like this, especially one that I've, I've seen before and I've heard before and I've been listening to for years. Like, what else is in there? What else might God want to show me about Himself and about the world I live in and about, about me? What might He want to show you and us here this morning about about Himself so that we can understand God better. And out of that place of a deeper understanding of who God is, then move into this world that we would more rightly understand and live more congruent with who He has shown us to be as an individual, as a people. And some of the best people at this, they're scholars that do deep dives. They're people that are curious about the Scripture. And I always love when, when I encounter a rabbi who has looked at this ancient text and considers it holy, even as we do consider these Scriptures holy. And they've been trained in the art of asking the right kinds of questions and diving in and playing with the text and, and not sure they can button it all up, but asking the deeper questions. I have some books of rabbis and I've listened to a... Uh, about a 12-minute segment on this text from a rabbi named David Foreman. David Foreman played with this in a way, and Jeremy and I had a riot with this stuff this week, talking it through. He played with this in a way that for me personally, it expanded, again, my image of God, my view of the world, and my place in it. I want to bring us back, and if we can pull up the first screen, Izzy, the first one here. I want to bring us back to the days of creation, 
the very opening story, because this story, the creation story, actually forms for us, lays the foundation. It's not just the first two books of the Bible that we read about this. It lays the foundation for the remainder of the Scripture and for life itself. But day one, what do we have on day one? We have nothing but chaos. Tohu va vohu, as we learned last week. It's just water. It is a water world, top to bottom. The whole thing is water. And then the wind of God begins to move over the surface of the deep. Day two of creation, we see that God stops the waters from below and the waters from above. And he separates the two of them, holds them back, so that there can be this space in between called the earth, where we live in between here. Day three. The waters begin to recede from the land and vegetation comes back on the land. Day four, he fills what he started by putting the sun, the greater light for the day and the lesser light, the moon for the night and paints the skies with all of the stars. Day five, he fills the air with the birds and they inhabit the air. Day six, he puts on the dry ground he puts animals, and he creates humankind. question is, do we see this in the story of Noah? And your inkling right now is we must, because we started tapping into it in part one, what else is there? And what else is there is actually this. Now, Rabbi David Foreman spells Noah a little bit differently than I do, but his way of getting at this is absolutely powerful. So if we go back to the days of creation and then go to the story of Noah, curious, what's there? What's there? Well, what we find in verse 1, or day 1 of creation, Knowing all the wild animals and the livestock that were in with him in the ark were remembered by God. And he sent a wind over the earth. Day one of creation, the Ruach, which is God or spirit or wind, all three of those great translations, the wind of God hovering over the face of the waters. Now we see in the first opening words of this story, part two of Noah, that the wind of God was hovering over the chaos, over the tovu vavohu. Wind of God is hovering over the chaos. What about day two? What we find in verse five here is this. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month. And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Suddenly dry ground is appearing. And in verse 11, when the dove returned to him because he had sent that dove out, the raven was flying back and forth and coming back to the boat because there's no dry ground. He sends a dove forth and the dove comes back with something. The dove returned to him in the evening and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive branch, which tells us what trees 
are back on planet Earth. The dry ground is back on planet Earth. Noah, envision with me, wonder with me this morning. Allow the question to stir you. Is he in the boat thinking about creation? Nothing but chaos. Day two. Suddenly the rain stopped. A firmament has been set in the sky that God is once again creating again. And He is front row seat to this, this movie that is unfolding or this happening, this creation that is happening. Day three, the waters recede and the dove comes back with a branch. Yes, trees are back on the earth. And then day four, the sun, the moon, the stars, nothing in this text on the story of Noah that points to day four. Nothing. We'll come back to that one. Day five. Day five in verse 12, we read this. Noah waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him, which means what? On day five, the birds were created, and now we have birds back in the air again. And then finally, what we have here in the final day is animals and people. And chapter 8, verses 17 and following, it says this, Bring out, God says to Noah, every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds and the animals and the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, which means day six of creation, all that walked on the ground came forth to the ground. Day six here we see the same thing in this story. A creation story is happening. Like what actually is happening here? We have a creation, a destruction of creation, and now... What we might say is this is a recreation here. A recreation. That God destroyed the earth as it was. And now God is in the process of remaking the earth. He brought it all the way back to nothing but water. And started over again. And he started over by first hovering over the face. The wind of God moves. Both stories. The waters from above and the waters from below, they get stopped. Both stories. The water recedes. Vegetation comes. Both stories. The creation and the recreation. Day five. Birds finally are in the sky. And yes, in the Noah story, they're back again in the sky. Creation, recreation. We have day six, the animals on the earth and the people on the earth. People and animals back on the earth again. But what do we do with day four? What about this day four? Well, in day four, what we actually have in day four is not the destruction of the sun, the moon, and the stars. We have no recreation of the sun, the moon, and the stars because... The sun, the moon, and the stars didn't go bad, didn't go corrupt, didn't go sour and spoil and curdle. 
There was no reason to destroy them. What got destroyed was the earth. And because there was no reason to destroy it, there was no reason to recreate it. So now the big question. Why this story? Why the flood story? Why is this in the Bible? Why a story of creation and recreation? Why, why would God record this so that we, this many thousands of years later, would be reading in it? What is he trying to teach us about him? What is he trying to teach us about this world that we live in? What is he trying to teach us about us? I'm going to let Rabbi David Foreman do the teaching on this. We roll the video. It matters because it actually changes in a subtle way our whole understanding of why God brought the flood in the first place. You know, stop your average person on the street and ask them, according to the Bible, why did God bring the great flood? Most people would likely say, you know, mankind turned evil. They were really bad, and God decided to punish them. So that's how the flood came to be. But the Torah seems to be telling us something else. The point of the flood wasn't really to destroy people. It was to destroy the world, our environment as a whole. You know, had the point been just to destroy people, God wouldn't need a whole recreation enterprise. All he'd have to do is repopulate the existing world. No, if there's a recreation going on here, the Torah is telling you that it was the earth that had been destroyed. That was the flood's principal target. Humanity's demise was almost, strange as it is to say, incidental. And I know that sounds crazy, but the truth is, you sort of see it if you look carefully at the Hebrew words that describe God's decision to bring about the flood. Hamas. The earth that was corrupt before God. The earth that was filled with violence. God looked at the earth and saw it was ruined. Because all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Earth, earth, earth. It's over and over again. People, they fill the earth with violence. And somehow that evil, it corrupts the earth itself. In other words, God had to get rid of the old world. It was ruined and create a new one. And while he was renovating, you know, painting the apartment, well, there's no place for you humans to live. It's not so much that they were all being punished as that they didn't all deserve to be saved. You know, I'll put some of you guys in a boat and keep them alive until the renovation's complete. But until then, look, there's no place to live. I got to fix the world. I can't have a ruined world. One of the tantalizing questions we're left with is this. If after the flood, God is in fact recreating the world, is he making the same world all over again? Or is he designing a different world? A friend of mine, Simcha Bear, once pointed out to me that as it began to rain and the floodwaters began to rise, God closed the door to the ark, in the words of the text, but when the flood was over, it was Noah who opened the doors of the ark. God closed the doors on his own world, as Simcha suggested. And when it was over, Noah opened the doors 
on a new world, on his world. God promised never again to destroy this new world. Why? Maybe it's because he'd given over the keys to us. It was our world now. Chillingly, God promised that he would never ruin the world. But he never promised that we wouldn't. It's our world now. Whether we keep it or ruin it is up to us. Hmm. It's our world now. Whether we keep it or whether we ruin it, it's up to us. I mean, that it's a sobering thought. And when we ask the questions which the video asks or Rabbi David Foreman asks, some of that is just not buttoned up. And I'm okay with that because I do think that some of our best learning comes when we dive in and wrestle with the right questions. And these are the right kinds of questions. And I wonder, what, is the, what does this story teach us about God? Because that matters. What does it teach us about our world? Because that matters. And what does it teach us about us? Because that really matters. And there's a ton. Let me just take one of them that I, I look at and would say, what does this text, what does it teach us about God? My favorite is the very first verse that we read. Chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, but God remembered Noah. Let's just stop there. It's like that's enough for us to really say, what does this say about God? That God remembered Noah. God was mindful of Noah. God took note of Noah. God revisited his thoughts about Noah. And do we see that anywhere else in the Bible? And the answer is yes, again and again and again and again we see it. God remembered Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That very that very word in that very format is found again and again. That God remembered his covenant. God remembered his promise not to destroy the earth again in this fashion. And he put the bow in the sky. And we've talked about that before around here. That the bow in the sky, that's how it's literally written. Not the rainbow, but a bow in the sky. Because the weapon of war was a bow, an arrow. And he turned his bow upside down, saying, I will not point it toward you. I made this promise. I remember my covenant with you. I remember my promise to you. He remembered his conversation with Hannah, who was barren. And he remembered and she cried out and said, God, remember me. Revisit me. Come back to me. Reminding him that you are the God that can provide a child for me. And she was given this child by this remembrance again and again and again and again and again. We can see the very character of God. And in this story, that's where it starts, that he remembered this one by name. I know your name, Noah. I know Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Hannah. I know the covenant people with whom I formed this covenant with. I will revisit and remember you. But there's one thing that we actually see that God doesn't remember. One thing that we see he doesn't revisit. One thing that we see he does not rekindle his thoughts on. And it's in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 25, when he says to the prophets, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, for me, because you're mine and I'm yours, for my own sake. 
and I will remember your sins no more. I will not revisit them. I will not rekindle thoughts about what you have done. I will not remember your sins any longer. What does this tell us about God? That He knows you. I'll remember my covenant. I'll remember my promise. I'll remember that I will not turn my violence toward you. I remember you and will rekindle my thoughts of each one of you by name, but I will not remember. I will not hold. I will not rekindle. I will not hold on to what you have done. Why, man, as we fast forward the story to the person of Jesus, given his life for us, that we might be freed. God proves this is who he is. What does this story of Noah tell us about the world? It's beautiful. And there's a weight to it. That God would not just create, but then recreate. That he would hover over the wind, the ruach of God. That he would then hold back that which could destroy waters below and waters above. That he would then speak into and begin to form the trees and the vegetation that's on the earth. That he would fill, that he would fill the sky with the birds and the land itself. That he shut the door of the ark to the old world. And Noah opened to the world that we're responsible for. The world in which we live. This new world, as David Foreman described it. And what does that look like? Is this accurate? Isn't it accurate? And I would say this. It was accurate in the first world, and it's definitely accurate if this is a second world. It's definitely accurate in the recreation and it was accurate in the first, because the very first story, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we were designed in God's image. We were, we were joined with God in co-creating, bringing good, or, in our case, bringing evil, wrong to the world. We were to oversee the earth itself, that we were given dominion over it. And in this story, again, it doubles down on it, that this is our world. To keep our world to bring beauty to, or our world to destroy. One conversation, one act, one move, one move of apathy, whatever it might be at a time. And what does this story say about you and what does it say about me? It says this, you're remembered. It says you're remembered by name. It says your sins are not remembered. It says that new things can come out of chaos, your chaos, my chaos, your life, my life. It says that our actions, they matter too. And God has entrusted us with much. How we act and how we live, it actually matters. I think about the conversations that I've had just this week, let alone over a lifetime of ministry, and I just think all these conversations that I had this week had this dance to them, every single one of them. And I spoke with three individuals this past week who were just wrestling with some past shame, past guilt, 
some stuff they had done in their life that they were not proud of. And that dance of God doesn't remember those things. When we come to Him and we confess those, He is faithful and He forgives and He redeems and He restores. He doesn't revisit. He doesn't come back to bring that back up again. But He does come back to you because you matter so much to Him that He told a prophet before Jesus even stepped into this planet in person. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I remember your sins no more. And now how we live out of gratitude for that, that matters. Think about a conversation that we've been having with a smaller circle of us here at Fairhaven Church over the last several weeks because one of our staff members, and he gave me permission to share this this morning, You get that phone call that you never want, but his son wasn't doing well. And then they brought him into the hospital and then they found that 27-year-old Andrew has cancer. And it's a brain tumor and it's a ganglioglioma, actually blastoma, ganglioblastoma. One of the most aggressive brain cancers you can have. And it's been progressing. And he found himself in the hospital just this past week because the the tumor had blocked off some of the ventricles in his brain that would allow the fluid to leave your your brain and it was starting to herniate his brain and the pressure was building in his brain and they had to put shunts in and the hope was to see him get back to some kind of rehab to get his strength back but he's not strong enough yet to leave the hospital to get over to Mary Freebedge. And Bruce this morning... Choked up, standing in the circle as we prayed right here this morning. He said, I got a text from Andrew this morning. It's this. Today is Super Sunday, Dad. Because God is for both of us. Wow. Wow. To be in the midst of a battle of a lifetime for his life. And for Andrew to have the kind of faith and to God to be so good. I remember you, Andrew. He's showing up in ways that Andrew needs, in the ways that Bruce needs. I remember you by name. Even as you walk through this valley, it feels like a shadow. I'm with you. And he feels the presence and the peace of God. What he doesn't feel, because there's no reason to feel it, is any kind of remembrance of wrongs that he's done. It's all about, I'm in the presence of the one who is keeping me dead. And today is a super Sunday because God is for both of us. What is Andrew doing? This world is mine to keep. I'm not sure he would have articulated it that way, but we can. This world is mine to keep. My actions matter. I think I'll reach out to my dad and make my dad's day a better day and remind my dad that God is good even when the world goes badly. What does this say about God? Oh, so much. Way more than we just touched in that brief little bit. What does it say about our world? 
Maybe if we can just grab hold of this, it's ours. It was in the very beginning, and it was in this story of Noah once again. It's ours to keep. And what matters, how we act and how we live out of that relationship with God and that charge. Go now. Be light in a dark world. Be salt to a world that needs preservative. Live with power and love. And that power is none other than the Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Father, right now we give thanks for Andrew and for the kind of faith that in the midst of a storm, and maybe in some ways he sent forth a dove, and the dove came back with a branch in its mouth, and he rejoiced, God's in this. For the kind of man that he is to reach out to his own dad and said, let me minister to my dad today. And if Andrew, how about us? How about us here? Use us in our stories, no matter what they are. May we have the courage to act and to so live that we will, one person at a time, one conversation at a time, That we will remember, we are remembered by name. We will remember that you're not a God who revisits, who rekindles thoughts about what we've already been forgiven of. That we will take ownership of our actions for this greater good that is called planet Earth. Because you've entrusted us with it. And may we so live and so love that with each conversation and each person we encounter, they would meet you. That's our desire. They would know you. And if that be through us, man, God, all the praise, all the glory, every bit of it, it belongs to you. In your name we pray. Amen.